I feel it too. Every time I teach, right. There's, there are things in my head that I want to say, and I always have to struggle. Am I going to say them or am I going to shut up and let the students figure out what they want to say? And I know, but the more space that we can give for the students to do the work, the better we will be at kind of helping them along this path towards production. Welcome to another podcast of Prisma Center for Jewish Day Schools. This is Elliot Rabin, Prisma's Director of Thought Leadership. This podcast is part of a series called Research Encounter, featuring a conversation between researchers and day school leaders about a recent work of scholarship. I am really pleased today to welcome John Levison, who holds the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Chair in Jewish Educational Thought at Brandeis and directs the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education there. And he is joined by two amazing heads of school, Stephanie Ives, head of Beit Raban, a gone through eighth grade community school in Manhattan, and Rafi Cashman, head of Nitivot HaTorah, a co-educational orthodox gone through eighth school in Toronto. Welcome, everybody. Today, we'll be discussing John's relatively recent paper called Producers, Not Possessors, A Direction for Jewish Education in Turbulent Times, published by the Applied Research Collective for American Jewry at NYU. So, John, uh, why don't you take it away and tell us a little bit uh, about your paper? So the backstory for this particular paper is that for the last couple of years, I've been thinking about the topic of Jewish literacy and some of the assumptions that are baked into that idea, or I think are baked into that idea. And then I was invited to participate in the Applied Research Collective for American Jewry at NYU. You just mentioned it um, by a friend and colleague Yehuda Sarna, Rabbi Yehuda Sarna at NYU. And that was an opportunity to work out some of my thinking about Jewish literacy and some of those assumptions. So what do I mean by the assumptions that go into how we typically think about Jewish literacy? Well, one is that for a lot of folks, the most important outcome of education is, I would argue, that knowledge or information kind of sits in the heads of our students. And it's just sitting there waiting to be retrieved when necessary. Another assumption is that students have to learn a lot of stuff before they can do anything with that stuff. So it's a kind of stage theory. First, you learn stuff, and then you can do stuff. That's another, I think, assumption that goes into how we typically think about Jewish literacy. And then there's also a, a, a powerful idea about how knowing the same things, if a group of people know the same things, that somehow binds us together. That, that is, brings us together in an important way, it brings the Jewish people together. And I can understand why people hold these particular views but I think that each one of them is problematic. I'm not going to sort of go through the entire argument, but I think each one of those assumptions is problematic. So I wrote a paper for the Applied Research Collective, and I tried to offer a different way of thinking about Jewish literacy. I talked about a conventional paradigm of Jewish literacy and then a new paradigm of Jewish literacy. The conventional paradigm is focused on the possession of information, 
And the new paradigm is focused on having the capacity to produce meanings or create artifacts or enact cultural performances within a particular cultural, Jewish cultural environment. So this new paper, relatively new paper, Producers Not Possessors, builds on that first paper called uh, A New Paradigm of Jewish Literacy and, and pushes the ideas further. The basic argument is this. I want Jewish education in day schools, but also elsewhere, to try to avoid as much as possible thinking about what students know and, and orienting education towards what students know, and instead try to think much more about what students can do, what they can produce with the knowledge that they have. So let me explain why this is important to me very briefly. I want Jews to have a feeling of agency, a feeling of ownership. To my mind, the primary challenge that we face is not actually illiteracy, but something more like disempowerment or a lack of agency. And I think we get to the feeling of agency and ownership, not necessarily by learning a bunch of stuff, although it is interesting what happens when we, when we acquire information, but really the way we get to a sense of agency and ownership is by being able to do things. And I actually care much less about the particular things that we learn how to do. So I'm actually fairly agnostic or maybe just pluralistic about the different realms of, of Jewish practice. I don't only mean Jewish ritual practice. That's an important one, but I don't only mean that. And I'm also fairly skeptical about broad and vague goals like strengthening Jewish identity. I'm much more enthusiastic about very specific goals, what we can learn how to do in a very specific domain. How do I learn to do this specific practice or how do I become proficient in this, in this particular language? To my mind, that's actually how we can achieve our, kind of our highest aspirations for, for Jewish identity and Jewish em- empowerment, not trying to teach those things directly, but teaching them indirectly through these opportunities to develop areas of expertise or the ability to produce. So my shorthand for this is that we want producers, not possessors. I want to turn now to uh, Stephanie and Rafi and ask how this argument strikes you. Does it strike you as obvious? Does it strike you what you do? Do you strike you as revolutionary? Are there new things that you discovered when reading and thinking about his argument? Um, Well, one, it was very affirming to me. I really loved the way you used the terminology of empowerment. And uh, we just built out a middle school a few years ago in fall of 2019. Turns out it's a great time to start a middle school just six months before COVID really um, conveniently planned. In any event, um, as we went through this design thinking process that was a community-wide process, we wanted to identify what the core pillars of the school were. And three of them were obvious, like the terminology was obvious. The fourth, the content was obvious, but we couldn't get the right words. So I'll go with the first three quickly. Active learning, boundless campus, kind community. Okay. And then the Jewish piece, we knew what we meant, but we couldn't get the terminology. And what we meant was we want to grow children 
who dream big, who have the skills and the dispositions, right? To dream big and then act on their dreams for themselves, for the Jewish people and for the world, right? And we know how we break that down. Like our strategies are fluency, um, personal meaning and joyful practice. And when we talk about fluency, we talk about text, um, practice, tradition, you know, general peoplehood history and, um, and, uh, and connection. And then personal meaning is list sort, sort of, so what, how do I fit in and what does this mean? Um, and then the last piece of joyful practice is that piece of being part of a community where you have the affective that's just so powerful, the moments, the affective, the things that stick with you. Um, and I really wanted to call this empowered Judaism. But empowered, which we did, I won. I think I might have actually kind of bullied everyone else. But in the end, I won. So it's fine. Um, I wanted to call it empowered Judaism, but that didn't sit well with a lot of people because it sounded like, oh, we're choosing like that fluffy identity education stuff. And, you know, that's fine for an Orthodox school to say, because a Shiva day school, everyone knows you're covering the content and you're getting the rigor. But when you're a pluralistic day school, the assumption is that you're, you're more on the fluff side and like you have to always be proving and um, affirming that you have the rigor, they have the content. And for, and I was like, no, we're like reclaiming this kind of terminology because how can you be an empowered Jew who has, and I'm betting on this for the Jewish future, who has the skills both hard and soft to actually follow through on whatever it's you're dreaming about, whatever it is, whatever challenge you're facing without actually those skills. So I really, really related to this. Um, and also my only critique is I, I do deeply believe in, um, and I, I think this is like a thing in Judaism, I deeply believe in Talmud Torah as a, a, a practice onto itself. And I want our kids to internalize, well, that is actually a Jewish practice. Even if it leads to nothing else, it's still, you know, Kineged Kulam. Um, and I never believe it leads to nothing else. But so that's my critique. You're just not from enough, John. Fair enough. Fair enough. I have plenty to say, but I want to hear from Other, Otherwise, I fully agree. <laughs> Two smaller thoughts and then one I'm I'm very curious what John thinks about as uh, sort of something that kept coming back to me through the through reading the article. So I I think one thing that John you're pointing to that I think is in my mind and I and I I think I agree with you. This is across the spectrum question and often not talked about, especially in more traditional environments, is some version of um, individual ownership of what is a conventional practice or conventional text or learning there's some often this feeling of this is what I'm supposed to know or I'm supposed to do and therefore there's this gap that opens up between me as the practitioner and then owning it for as as an in terms of my own understanding relationship you know uh, there are certain brachot that I love more than other brachot they mean something to me in terms of my own daily life other ones they just fall flat but I say them anyway but the way in which, you know, you inter I internalize that and make sense of it. And I think that's a process people, everybody should be going through. Um, you know, Rav Cook in a very beautiful way, and I don't have it in front of me, he talks about the way in which every, every person has the unique way in which Torah shines through them. But the, you need, that individual soul needs to have that experience of, of learning and, and Jewish life. And, and that's when it, but they have to be, know that they can make it shine. 
that it's not foreign or divorce. I think that's the bridge you're trying to, to, to draw here. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that's, that's what's so powerful about the model you're, you're suggesting. Um, I think educators, in my experience, often get caught up in this pitfall of, but they have to know X later on in order to be like good practicing Jews. It's not in the end of fifth grade. It's, it's like they'll need to know you know, these things later, later in life. And I understand why you sort of, as the educator, you want them to be prepared. You think you're doing them a good thing. You're doing something good for them, but you're just like widening that gap incredibly. And by saying, here's something you must know, you're not going to use it for 20 years, but, uh, but just make sure it's in the back of your mind somewhere. And so I think that's a bit of a, that's a, that's a pitfall. We often, we often fall into it. If I have a critique and, and I'm, and I'm curious if you see as a critique or me sort of, not analyzing this in the way you intended um the focus on um autonomy and uh and self-efficacy is in my mind arises from a the 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 pressure of modernity as a as a construct in our minds it certainly applies all the way through i would say all the way through all all religious life and but certainly very deeply and explicitly through you know modern orthodoxy um but I, I think a lot of the embodied practice that you refer to and the living of Jewish life happens in community. And so it's not really about, and often not even exclusively about the sense in which I make of it or the way in which I, in your language, am a producer of anything, maybe a behavior. I'm an, I'm an actor, I'm a doer, but not, there's actually a limit on that production, on that creativity, at least in terms of how it looks. Um, and and I think that's an, I don't know if that's a, a corrective to what we're talking about, how you presented it, or just another layer that needs a little more explication. That's your next article. Um, or, or I had, or I, or I didn't quite see how it came out as much. I'm, I'm really interested in how you, how that piece comes out. And I have more to say, but I'm going to stop there. I sometimes with my students, uh, and here I'm thinking about either undergraduates here at Brandeis, sometimes graduate students, uh, particularly in the Hornstein program, preparing to be Jewish professionals, I sometimes uh, have used uh, the phrase the Shanda theory of Jewish education, and this is not a term, uh, not a complimentary term. The Shanda theory of Jewish education uh, is a theory that is governed by the fear that it would be a Shanda if you know the graduate of my day school, my department doesn't know X, right? Doesn't know this thing. And, and I submit A, that this is a prominent operative theory of education and B, that it's a terrible theory of education, right? The thing we, the, the worst way to, to design our curriculum is to worry, is, is to let our anxieties lead about how it will make us look if, you know, my graduate student goes out in the world and, and doesn't remember that there are six orders of the Mishnah, right? That's a terrible... If that's an important piece of information, we ought to be able to explain why it's an important information and what it helps that person to do, rather than just saying that I'm going to be embarrassed by it. Um, the the um, let me go to the point about about Talmud Torah, Stephanie, that you raised, and um, and I think I want to say that I entirely agree with you. I I want to argue that the important thing to understand about Torah, about Talmud Torah, about Torah Lishma, is not, or the implications of my argument about, about producers, not possessors, I don't think is that 
that the Torah should somehow be utilitarian. I would want to reject that interpretation. Um, there's, uh, there's the famous Mishnah in, in Avot 4-5, um, which talks about Torah, um, learning Torah in order to do. But actually the best line in that Mishnah, to my mind, my favorite line in that Mishnah is actually in the middle where Rabbi Tzadok says, uh, don't make, it's plural, so I don't know the words of Torah, uh, into a crown to, I don't know, exalt yourself through them and, and don't make them into a, uh, a shovel to dig with. And what I read, the way I read Rabbi Tzadok there is saying, we need to carve out a space for Torah where we, on the one hand, we, we put our egos aside. We don't turn this into an ego trip. It's, it's not all about me and the, the veneration that, that will flow because I've, I've achieved something in Torah or I've said something brilliant. It's not, we have to kind of set aside that, distorting effect of the ego and we also have to recognize the country from the other side the way in which we can over instrumentalize the study of torah so we want to carve out this space for torah where it's a space of exploration where it's a space of play where it's a space of connection where we're not thinking practically in that kind of utilitarian sense but here's the thing it's a practice, right? In, in the vision of Rabbi Tzadok, he's not saying, and therefore you have to memorize and, and hold the information in your head. He's talking about what are the ethics that are going to guide this practice of Talmud Torah? What are the, of, of this exploration of, of this um, encounter with a tradition of a, a way of, of connecting to people around this tradition of making it, it meaningful. He's talking about the ethics that guide a practice. So for me, I just want to emphasize, right, Stephanie, what you just said, it's the practice of Torah. It's not the knowledge of Torah. It's not holding the Torah in your head. It's producing or enacting the study of the study of Torah. Um, Last thing, I just want to circle back to, to Rafi, to your critique. I think it's entirely on point. There is a kind of um, kind of lurking individualism that is both part of our lives as, as moderns and is also highly problematic. And here I would just say that a genuine understanding of any practice recognizes its, its social nature we don't actually conduct a practice by ourselves. We're always in dialogue with others, even if they're imagined others or if they're historical others. We're situating ourselves. The literature on practice is like the dominant metaphor is communities of practice. We find ourselves in communities of practice. We take over their norms. We adapt them. We apply them. We enact them. We improve them. We critique them. But they're not just our own invention. So we're not even if sometimes in, in practice, I might be sitting in my office alone. Happily today, I'm not. I'm in, engaged with colleagues. Um, but sometimes we find ourselves doing things on our own. But at a deeper level, we're always in community. And there's no practice that is without, again, it can be an implied community, an imagined community, historical community, or an actual lived embodied community. 
I was thinking, um, as, as actually as Rafi was speaking, when you talk about producers, I don't actually read that as uh, leaders in the traditional sense, right? Like you, I, I, my friend Ellie Confer, I think it was, had said like, we're always training leaders Can somebody please train followers, right? <laughs> so that we can have a job. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I don't have the sense that like Jewish education is about um, the leaders of the 21st century. I mean, I don't even like, I don't know what that means. Everyone's a leader in their own way, but everyone's a producer. And when um, Rafi had just said something about like sort of a cap on um, what kind of action you can take if you're in a community, like there are going to be people who are the thought leaders and there are going to be the people who are the Gedole Hador and, they're, and whether that, that is from the perspective of halacha or social change and they're going to be the statesmen and statespeople, et cetera. But they're also going to be the people who walk into shul and look around and say, I need to invite people for Shabbos lunch and I need to make sure that I have enough food in advance to do that. They might be the same people, they might not, but I kind of, I want everyone here to graduate. Um, I graduate is like technical, that's not what I mean. I mean, I, I, want, I want to um, grow people who have that sense of innate production obligation. <laughs> you know, I have an obligation to act as part of Judaism. And that might mean inviting somebody for Shabbos lunch. It might mean social change. It might mean many different things at different points in my life, but I'm acting in this world as a Jew. And that obligates me. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Buffy, sorry, go ahead. Look, I connect two parts of what, what you're, you both said um, and just do a little more explicitly. And I'm gonna quote John if that's okay. He has a line here that I think we're talking about practice and we're talking about mindset. Um, and, and, uh, and I don't want to, I think they are, they're not, they're, they are the same thing in this context. So we, Stephanie, you said, you know, you want a person who thinks I'm going to prepare more food on Shabbos so I can have the guest over. But the thing they're thinking about, it's a mindset that's an embodied practice. It's all happening sort of in one unit. So it's got a, this line, producers begin to think about themselves differently, think about themselves differently as capable and empowered, as active rather than passive, as having control, as doing things in the world rather than having things done to them. And I think that's, that mindset is, I think, the powerful piece that m makes the behavior a, a producer behavior and a, and a uh, we call it meaningful behavior, to use John's language from before. Yeah, I do. I think that that's. I think that that's right. I'll tell you. Um, I hope I'm not spilling any secrets here, but I've. Um, I do some work with um, with our friends at One Table, which is you know a very different kind of Jewish educational project than than Jewish day schools. Um, but one of the conversations that One Table has been thinking a lot about. So One Table is a, an organization that promotes Shabbat dinner among, I guess uh, I don't know, emerging adults. Um, uh, and uh, has created a whole platform for hosting and for being a guest. And one of the things that they think a lot about is, is there a practice of being a, a guest at a Shabbat table, just like there is a practice of hosting? And I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is just like, there, it, you know, it's, it is not the case that the only important work that happens in a synagogue is what happens on the bima 
or or you know at the table where the where the Torah is being read. That is important work. You can't have the synagogue without that. But it's not the only important work. And if you don't have, I mean, to use the metaphor, if you don't have the followers, you have no leader, right? A leader without followers is a person taking a walk. So uh, the 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 location, the different locations in that, let's say, that physical space of a synagogue, demarcate different variations on the practice, but all of them are, in a way, enactments, performances. And you have to know something in order to, quote, do it right. You know, there, there are ways of kind of getting it wrong, of take, making the wrong moves or moving at the wrong times. Or all those things, there are norms around that. And there's also an empowerment that comes from being totally comfortable walking into a shul, not giving the drasha, not reading from the Torah, but actually being a member of the community. And if anything, I want to, maybe this is another paper that you guys will help me write sometime. I think this is actually underestimated in the, in the way we talk about the outcomes of, of Jewish day schools in particular. I think that kids learn how to be in community. They learn how to engage with other Jews. They learn how to talk about things together there's no class, maybe there is, I don't know, you'll tell me in your schools if there's a class on this topic, but I think it's part of the everyday life of Jewish day school, certainly at their best, that kids are engaged in the work of being part of a community, building a community, not just when they're the head of the student council, that's important too, but everything they do, that's actually also a kind of kind of learning and also a kind of performance. It's the performance of Jewish community. Well, it's ritualized, right? Like I, I think just always think about how I, I think it's a lot easier to be, to have a progressive and often project-based education in an authentic way in the Jewish context than it is even in the secular context, because we have all these authentic rituals that actually make sense and come at the right time. And you're not sort of like creating random things for kids to learn out of context, but you know, you have Rosh Chodesh and you have celebrations of Rosh Chodesh and all the Chagim and families come together and Shabbat meals and, and all that stuff that you do as a community, you learn a lot about interaction. I mean, I just think even the ritualized mode of learning through Chavruta is it's like unbelievable how much our kids learn. They learn in a way that's totally transferable, right? I, I um, didn't have the best education, Jewishly or otherwise, um, until law school, frankly. And I came into law school thinking like, wow, I'm going to be found out because this is the first time, right? This is the first time I'm in a real school. And, and I was just like, oh, I know how to do this. I know how to analyze things. I know how to be in conversation. I know how I totally get things being complicated and paradoxical and sitting with both. And that's, that's all ritualized for us. How lucky are we? We're so lucky. Some of this conversation, I think, can be a little abstract. We've kind of put it, made it a little bit more concrete outside of the school context. But I'm wondering, um, what are some of the educational implications within, especially within a day school, that you see for this idea of uh, producers? And, And I'm especially intrigued by John's analogies, which uh, really, you know, especially the martial arts one, I have to say, that really emphasize um, the performative aspect of 
this kind of education, which is not something I think is at all obvious when we think of Jewish studies. And I'm wondering um, if that resonates for you, Stephanie and Rafi, and whether Jewish studies, do you see it as fitting in better with this, these kind of performative educational areas like poetry and music or martial arts, or more in kind of traditional knowledge base to, to, um, to use or possessor frameworks, uh, subjects like science that we think of, science, math, history, et cetera, or something else? If I could slightly put a point on your question, at least the one that I'm struggling with, which is why I'm going to ask it rather than try to respond to it, which is that on one hand, so the, I like the metaphor um, of the, the martial arts metaphor, and thinking about it as a novice rather than a deficit as a kid, a child who doesn't have something, but thinking of it as a novice and a place yeah. to grow from. That's true. But, um, and, so, and I sort of have two, holding two things. On one hand, uh, you know, uh, we were talking before about Asher Yatsar, you know, making a bracha, I have to go to the bathroom. So, you know, a, a five-year-old can learn to say Asher Yatsar and say bracha in the morning and sing a donalam and, um, and learn to make a bracha on their food. Um, and, so in that sense, they are very much on the inside of doing it and in, a, in whatever way that they're, they're capable of. And so that's, that's like one version of the answer. And yet, um, in so much else, they are, they're novices. They're like, they're right at the beginning. And we don't have, we don't, we have reasonable expectations of novices in physics, of which I still struggle with my, you know, my grade 10 physics that I never quite got beyond, but you know, it, I, I never got to a place that I was on the inside of it. What does it mean for our novices in these younger grades? Yes, we're teaching them the embodied practice, but then what's, what do we, what does it look, what does that trajectory of growth look like that John you're describing? I don't know, maybe Stephanie, you have a clearer idea than I do, but that's sort of what I struggle with, especially when thinking if, if we, you know, I wrote John, you know, wrote, you know, to, to, is, if, does to do equal to produce? Because produce has a creative implication to it. And this is why I struggle with your language a little bit. To do doesn't. To do, I'm just, I'm, I'm doing the bracha, I'm embodying, I'm living it. I'm not producing something. I'm not creating something. I'm not moving beyond. Or, or maybe I am as I grow, but I don't know that I am as a five-year-old. So that's where I'm sort of struggling into what does novice mean in this context? Is it just a doer? Is it something else? If so, what is it? And what does that mean for a novice? So that's my struggle. I bet you're already doing it. I, 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 maybe it's a struggle in theory, but I bet you're already doing it, right? So obviously you're an actor and not just a passive possessor, right? I guess there's a stage between, between possessor and producer. I'm not sure if John intends it to be, but I would think there's sort of like a stage of actor and practicer or something like that. And we have that built in, right? Like you said, they're brachot or like they're learning tefillah. They say tefillah. They're, you know, they're learning Torah. They learn Torah and translate it and then they teach it. And you have, and we all build that in because we all do a good job. Um, and sometimes we make it better than other times and we create that like next step of production. So here's like a simple example. And we all do this in different ways, right? Like you get your Sidur in first grade, you get your Fumash in second grade. Everybody does that, right? Everybody's in Jewish day school. Do you get up for your Sidur celebration or whatever you call it, your tech S? And do you perform or do you daven with your family 
and talk about your favorite tefillah and how does it affect you? And when you think about it, do the other people in the room share all the weird places that they've prayed in life? And do you then feel like you're part of a community where there's value in this practice that doesn't just happen in this classroom, but and isn't just about learning, it's about lifelong or similarly like, um, you know, again, are you performing a play about Humash? Are you singing random songs I quote from the Torah that are good? Or are you, you know, are you showcasing your pride and confidence in your ability to read the Humash, whether it's whether it's the Humash or the Torah scroll, etc. And are you again interpreting it? I think the act of interpretation is its self-production. And like all of us do that, right? We do that when you ask, even when you ask the question of what's bothering Rashi, that's that's a form of interpretation, right? Um, I don't know, I bet you already do it. I don't do a lot of things. My kids do not know Asher Yatsar. I'm admitting it here. Nobody send your children to my school unless you hate Asher Yatsar. They don't know it. Yet, yet. Yet, Shemishmore. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, uh, but yes to both the question and the, Rafi, your question and Stephanie, your response. I do think that, I mean, in a way, Stephanie, this circles back to something you said at the outset. Um, my goal in writing this is actually to try and offer some language for things that I know are happening in important and significant ways and inconsistently and, you know, complicated and there are different pressures and all those things, but to try and lift up and, and be able to name some of the best things that, that we do. Rafi, I do think you're right that there, that there is a fuzziness around the language of production. I try for the sake of simplicity and the, you know, in the, in the development of my argument, um, I have Yehuda Sarna in my ear who was really pushing me like, John, make it direct. Like, don't, like, don't, I don't want to see four different paradigms, make it two paradigms. Like, um, and, and that's really helpful. It's really helpful for, for, you know, a philosopher of education who, who is much more comfortable writing a third 30 page paper with 50 footnotes to just say like, all right, let's try and really articulate this. So one of the fuzziness, I think, uh, around the idea of production is I think it also encompasses enactments. I think production encompasses enactment. And Stephanie, you kind of, you kind of said this enactment of a cultural practice is to my mind, a kind of production. And we, there's another conversation to be had about, about language and interpretation and all those things, but, but I, that's, that's um, partly. And Rafi, I also want to say that you're putting your finger on something which I actually think is hard. Our most intensively cognitive practices in our educational systems are, are the ones where it is hardest to develop a trajectory and for our students to feel like they make progress and they get good at something. Um, and so Stephanie, you gave wonderful, wonderful examples. Um, and, and there still is this question, okay, but what does it look like in physics and what does it look like in history? And what does it look like when you're, when you're studying whatever, Mishnah? Um, uh, how, how do we give the sense to the students that over time, they actually feel like they are doing better at this thing. 
that we call physics or history or Mishnah. And I actually worry about this. I, I worry that we don't, we don't have, we're not, we don't have clear enough structures that help students to see. Yeah. Last year I could do, I could do this in Mishnah and now I can do this in Mishnah. Now I feel more independence, more, more um, autonomy, more sense of ownership over this material. Um, I do think that the ever-present danger is that we as educators will not make space for the students to do the work that they need to do, right? Because we're, we feel such pressure, whether it's pressure to cover material, yeah. or pressure to articulate our own authority, our own wisdom, how much we have how much insight we have. I feel it too. Every time I teach, right. There's, there are things in my head that I want to say, and I always have to struggle. Am I going to say them or am I going to shut up and let the students figure out what they want to say? Um, and I know, and there always has to be some balance and it's not like the student, it's not like there's no role for the teacher in the classroom. Of course there is, but the more space that we can give for the students to do the work, the the better we will be at kind of helping them along this path of um, towards production. Um, so, so I love this. This is like, I, I told you, like, I just, I'm like, wow, what a bracha. I just got the language that actually is so much easier to use than what I've been using and trying to say in paragraphs and paragraphs. And I'm going to start using this language Every year when I onboard new teachers, I'm going to use it in my faculty guidelines when I explain what we're trying to achieve Jewishly, et cetera. God bless you. That's a um, lot of pressure. No, I already, you already did it. <laughs> you already did it. No, I won't quote you. I'll pretend I said it. Um, no pressure. Um, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about what this means in the context of Israel education and Zionist, Zionism education and what it means to be a producer, because absolutely the field is still stuck in possessor, even though we know it doesn't make sense. Possessor to the point of like, you're literally just hanging on history, which is so much less sophisticated even than the way we do Judaism learning, right? Because at least you're learning skills, <laughs> you're learning practice. And, and in Israel, we're learning, we're still, we're teaching history. And, um, and I'm trying to get away from it and it's really hard. And I'm thinking about well, what do I want them to produce, you know? And what does it mean to be empowered? So I am very blessed to work in a, uh, a school where I get to define Zionism for our school and, you know, write these statements that maybe two people read who agree with me and the others they'll find out when they ask, you know? So we, we define Zionism as, um, feeling a deep sense of obligation to Israel as part of, um, as a Jew, as part being part of the Jewish people. And we sort of, you know, we break it down and we try to use the same language of fluency and experience, et cetera. And I think the production there is take care of it. And I don't know, I, uh, with an understanding that what it means to take care of it is going to be different for each person as you grow up. And that also, I actually don't know what take care of it is going to mean in 30 years when you're adults. Um, I know what it meant 30 years ago. Right now, I'm really confused. Um, but I would love to hear you, if you've thought about it in this context, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, here, I, I think um, I'll just plagiarize 
from my good friend and colleague, Sivan Zakai, um, who just published a book about children's understanding of Israel called um, My Second Favorite Country, which I, I very, very warmly recommend. Maybe you can do a podcast um, with her. I think it would be well worth it. Um, but maybe just as a littlest uh, down payment on that, I think that Sivan would say, um, based on her argument in the book, which is based on nine years of data collection over time with uh, actually with kids who started out in Jewish day schools, they went various places, but um, with, with a population of kids that she tracked over time. What she would say is that there, there are a set of conversations that students are actually desperate to participate in, a kind of engagement she thinks about this in terms of civic engagement, the kind of civic engagement that our students want to be involved in and they experience the adults in their lives as hiding the ball, as, as saying, as not being willing to engage um, in at least one place in the book and, and certainly in conversations, she compares it to sex education. Yeah, the kids oh God, they yeah. want to be involved in the conversation. They want to be involved with adults whom they trust in the conversation and help them to think about things and talk about things and navigate important questions. And what they experience is nobody's willing to talk to them about the hard things. They're willing to tell them the things that apparently there's consensus about. Like, let me tell you about I don't know about Golda, and let me tell you about I don't know Startup Nation. Um, but they're not willing to talk about the hardest things. And that's what they, that they write, uh, I'm sorry, they talk about in these interviews um, really consistently is their frustration and not being willing to participate. So I'm emphasizing here participation. I think we could kind of transpose the language of participation into a kind of production or a kind of enactment, but really it's about being involved in, in that set of conversations. Although I should say, Stephanie, that the way that you framed it in terms of you know, cultivating a sense of obligation and figuring out, so what is my role? Right? This is not just a country. This is not just somebody else's project. What is my role in furthering this project? Where do I stand on this project? I, I think, I think that's, a, that's a terrific direction in which to take the work. So I want to take actually John's original framework and Stephanie's question and taking a very different direction as an example of John's work in a very different direction. So I, I am, I'm dating myself a drop in so far as it's drawing on research I did for my doctorate. So that was already, you know, a good 10 years ago. But one of the things that I found, it was, a, it was a study of a modern Orthodox Zionist girls high school, religious Zionist girls high school. And one of the things that was fascinating is if to locate their greatest point of passion and connection and engagement was around Israel much, much more so than about uh, just religious Jewish practice. Uh, for them, that was the place where they most deeply connected. And I would argue the place where they were least educated. Um, they, they knew the least, they were taught the least. And so they had the least content and the greatest affective emotional engagement. And there's an extraordinarily high LER rate from that school. Um, and so in, in thinking about, you know, your, John's model and, you know, this question, how it manifests so differently in you know the environment that you're operating in, and the environment in which those girls are operating in, um, and but it so it's interesting how differently it plays out, but also interesting how much John's model works so well to describe their you know what what worked for them about it that that it's really not 
yes, of course, there needs there are things that happen when you have an, an input of content, learning, and sophistication. But there's also powerful things that happen because you live it and because it's real for you and because you can go there and do something uh, and be part of something. And and that's, I think, a core part of what John's pointing to. And so maybe a way of closing. I would just ask, though, there's, there's also a lot of people who take action without any sophisticated thought. I'm not saying making all the eyes like, you know, God forbid, no one should think I'm not a Zionist. Stephanie Ives and Beit Rabban are Zionists, okay? In my own definition. Um, but um, not that I'm saying, you know, making all the eyes an uneducated action. But there are lots of people who live in environments that have almost a cultish brainwashing with lots of action and passion, but not necessarily sophisticated and I would say thick and sticky um, passion, right? Because... If you don't know why you're doing something and you haven't spent a lot of time discovering and unearthing it and, and turning it over and over, as you know, our tradition says, um, I think it's less sticky the second you have a fissure or a rupture. Um, so I, I, I know nothing about this school and I know nothing if that's the case, but I, I do wonder, and, and I'll say, by the way, uh, not a, like to take it out of Zionism, right? I, I worry in the liberal world that I now inhabit that I didn't grow up in, right, about the tikkun olam trap. I never even knew that word growing up in an Orthodox community. I was like, what are people talking about tikkun olam, right? I mean, we knew about chesed and obligation, you know, being, um, having mitzvot. Um, but I see this like massive tikkun olam trap that is actually kind of similar, right? This is like sort of empowerment without knowing what you're talking about necessarily. And also um, this lack of humility. I can change the world. I'm going to fix the brokenness. I am acting as God. I don't know what I am talking about. I have banned that word in the school. And when we created our, um, our like community service period, every week that we have in our Hatiba in our middle school, we call it Shirut Kilati, um, community service. I wanted to call it Torinut, but people thought that that was too, <laughs> like, it was too like draconian kibbutz-like. Um, but we can get things, kids to do all sorts of things in the short run with passionately. The question is like, what does that mean long-term when we're not here? Um, you know, what does it mean when the tikkun olam you're trying to do actually might make things worse or is really just a vanity project or, um, you know, the Zionism you grow up with has, has that moment of rupture. Thank you, John, Stephanie, and Rafi, for a rich and enjoyable conversation about the goals of Jewish education. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast five stars and share it with your friends and on social media. You can follow our podcasts by searching for Prisma on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. To learn more about Prisma, go to our website at www.prisma.org and follow us at Prisma CJDS. Prisma's work, including this podcast, is made possible by generous funders who believe deeply in the power of a great Jewish day school education. Visit prisma.org to add your name to the growing list of donors supporting day schools across North America. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed and we'll come back again soon for future episodes.